0: Podcast Public Service Announcement. You're about to hear an episode in the middle of a multi part show arc. If you haven't heard the previous episodes, we suggest you skip back to part one of this topic in the feed and listen in order. All right, Paranoid Strain Orchestra, hit it.
1: You've got no
0: thing dates back to 1969, when a British actor and television writer named Henry Lincoln purchased a paperback during a vacation in France. The book was called... Actually, Dana, could you do the honors?
2: Le Tresseur maudit de Rennes-le-Château.
0: Sounds so nice when you say it. The title translates to The Accursed Treasure of Rennes-le-Château, for us English-only Cretans. The book spun a fascinating tale of lost treasure, an accursed church and its potentially devil-worshipping parish priest, and the suggestion that he had uncovered secrets that had been hidden for nearly a thousand years. Lincoln got super obsessed with the idea of a treasure being hidden in a small rural French parish and convinced the producer of the BBC documentary series Chronicle to fund a short film on the mystery of its vicar, Berenger Saunier. And because we live in an age of fucking miracles, we're about to share clips from that film and the two sequels he talked the BBC into producing as well, once the first show turned out to be a major hit with the viewing public. But to summarize the story that DeSed wrote about and Lincoln filmed, we're going to turn to an excellent book on the subject by Bill Putnam and John Edwin Wood titled The Treasure of Rennes-le-Chateau. Here's how they relate the best-known version of this story. In 1885, a poor parish priest of no notable heritage or unique skills, Beringer Saunier, was assigned by his church superiors to an obscure and ancient town in the historical Languedoc region.
2: You'll recall that's the Cathar's old stomping grounds.
0: He was soon able to use a donation from a wealthy parishioner to begin a remodeling of the altar and to install some stained glass windows. But a few years later, Sonier suddenly began to spend huge sums of money on an enormous rebuilding project encompassing not only the parish church, but also his own residences, the town's graveyard, and more. No one knows where the money came from, but many suspect he found a fabulous treasure somehow. That there is something weird about the story is bolstered by the fact that the refurbished church is full of strange embellishments that many have taken as clues to the location of said treasure, put there on purpose as part of some strange master plan of Saunier's.
2: One emblematically strange example? An arch over the entrance to the church reads, Terribilis est locus iste." Translation, this place is
0: terrible. Adding to the mystery, of course, is the deep history of Renle Chateau, which by dint of its position in the foothills of the Pyrenees, had over the centuries been adjacent to major events, including the tragic story of the Cathars.
2: It was once a stronghold of that faith.
0: And the exploits of the Knights Templar.
2: Who built castles in the area, but that's not surprising. They built castles everywhere, because those dudes were fucking flush with cash, at least at one time.
0: Anyway, the story goes that during Saunier’s extensive renovations, workmen opened an ancient Visigothic column in the church that turned out to contain parchments. Excitingly, some of these parchments are apparently still around and have been shown to include carefully coded messages. Saunière traveled extensively and for mysterious ends. Reports have him meeting with luminaries of the time. It's said he visited the Louvre and purchased paintings, including one by Nicolas Poussin, The Shepherds of Arcady, that depicts a tomb surrounded by shepherds in a bucolic setting there's an inscription on the tomb as well, et in Arcadia, Ego.
2: Translation? Even I, death, am in Arcadia.
0: This seems like an unimportant point until you realize that one of the two remaining parchments, when deciphered, includes the message, Poussin holds the key. Also, as Lincoln and Desaed discovered, there's a tomb in the countryside around Rennes that resembles the one featured in the Poussin painting. Could this also be a clue to the treasure? Eventually, back in the 19 aughts, Saunier's extensive renovations were complete, but confusingly, he and his longtime housekeeper, Marie Denarnot,
2: whom pretty much everyone agrees was more than a housekeeper, if you know what I'm saying,
0: stayed in a modest residence while the remodeled mansion he'd had built on the church's grounds, called Villa Bethany, was reserved for entertaining fancy guests. Eventually, Sonnier's lavish spending came to the attention of his superiors in the Catholic hierarchy. When they demanded to know the source of his funds, he couldn't, or wouldn't, provide the information. He was stripped of his priestly duties by the Vatican, though he continued to celebrate Mass in defiance of these orders until his death in 1917. Reportedly, his final confession to a fellow priest was so shocking that the man refused to give Saunier absolution from his sins as is traditional for dying Catholics. The housekeeper stayed in Villa Bethany until her death in 1953, though she sold the property in 1946 to Noël Corbu, who developed it into a resort offering the bucolic quiet of the picturesque village and its landscape. While she regularly intimated to Corbu that she was in possession of a secret, and that she would pass it along to him eventually, she died in 1953, never having revealed it. If there was a treasure, no one to this day knows where it is.
2: Well, that is indeed an interesting story. What did Lincoln's documentarian instincts uncover to flesh out the picture?:
0: Quite a lot, if your standards of evidence are low. Let's start with this monologue from the first film, provocatively titled "The Lost Treasure of Jerusalem," where he puzzles over the story of Sonire and drops in some completely unwarranted speculation about the Templars finding some of the same supposed treasure Sonier had located.
1: Over the centuries there have been persistent legends of the lost gold or a treasure in this area. For instance, during the Middle Ages, the religious military order of the Knights Templars brought in gold miners into the area, or so it was said. They were kept totally segregated from the rest of the population. And yet it seems likely that these gold miners were in fact gold workers, reconverting the golden artifacts back into crude gold, which they could bring out of the gold mines.
0: Hear how he just changed up the Templar story without any actual evidence, making the supposed gold miners into gold workers? And he only does it because he wants the story to change from Templars dug for gold in this area to Templars needed to melt down gold in this area because he's already decided the treasure exists?
2: Hey, you know that wildly misapplied phrase, begging the question? Which people usually use as if it means this leads us to the question of, as when someone says in the middle of a discussion of the Cohen brothers over, This begs the question, is Racing Arizona their finest film? Now, of course, the correct answer is an emphatic yes, followed by, and it's also the greatest movie ever made by human beings. But this is not what begs the question is supposed to be used for. It's supposed to point out a logical fallacy in which a person assumes the validity of his conclusion rather than offering facts to support it. As in, we're justified in making this leap to Templars melting down gold based on the fact that they clearly found the treasure we were hypothesizing might exist here, thus fallaciously using one unsupported assumption as evidence for another unsupported assumption without actually proving the validity of either.
0: We'll find this unfortunate and disingenuous approach to determining the facts of a proposed scenario sprinkled throughout his later work in Holy Blood, as well as some truly risible defensiveness when it comes to Lincoln and his co-authors amateurish and indefensible approach to historiography. By the end of film one, Lincoln appeared to believe his most important questions remained unanswered. Two years later, he therefore produced a second film on the topic, titled The Priest, The Painter, and The Devil. In this one, he engages in some architectural criticism of Saunière's choices in terms of church redecorating strategies. The statues seem blind and remote.
1: There is a strange emptiness here, a confusing, puzzling, mysterious mass of detail, which seems to be trying to say something though the voice is muffled. The total effect is almost overpowering. There is no delicacy here, rather a flamboyant expression of enormous vitality sliding towards bad taste. In its vulgar charm, it seems to be echoing the character of its creator, Béranger Saunière, the priest, who seems to be taking a delight in playing with us, giving us clues. Is Sonia trying to show us what the parchments showed him? Perhaps if we could read the secret
0: messages, we too could be led to the source of Sonia's wealth. But then he gets down to analyzing the messages encoded in the two parchments found by the priest in the ancient pillar on his altar, which is a little more interesting and a lot more French.
1: And here is the first message, found quite simply by identifying those letters which are raised higher than the rest of the text and reading them off in sequence. A Dagobert de Roi, et a Sion, et ce trésor, et il est la mort. This treasure belongs to Dagobert II, king, and to Zion, and he is there dead. So the message makes it quite clear that we are dealing with treasure and a treasure that belongs to Dagobert II, who is presumably the he who is there dead. So who the fuck is this Dagobert? Again, Lincoln's got you, baby! Dagobert was one of the last kings of the Merovingian dynasty of France. He was assassinated in the year 679 AD. It is perhaps not impossible that a Dark Ages royal treasury could be hidden away here. But Zion, Zion is Jerusalem. And the treasure of Jerusalem, the treasure of Solomon's temple, was carried off by the Romans, who sacked the city in 70 AD.
0: How can the treasure of Jerusalem possibly be linked with Rennes le chateau So, Lincoln's interpretation of the secret message in Saunière's parchment suggests a couple of things here. One. This Dagobert, the last of the Merovingian kings,
2: a medieval dynasty of Frankish kings that will become surprisingly important in this strange story very shortly.
0: Anyway, Dagobert's treasure lies, presumably, with his body, wherever that is. Two? This treasure is also, apparently, associated with Zion, another word for Jerusalem, i.e. the place where the Knights Templar's temple was located, where they supposedly first began to build their fabulous wealth, etc. Lincoln leaves open the question of how these two might be associated, though it's safe to say he thinks he has some answers. I.e., it's the same treasure. But in spite of these gold and jewels treasure peregrinations, in this film, Lincoln comes to decide his focus on filthy lucre has actually been a red herring.
1: Long months of work have gone into the unraveling of all these ingenious clues. But my fascination with these puzzles and preoccupations with thoughts of treasure had obscured the simple truth which now seems to me to lie behind Sonier's sudden wealth. That truth seems to lie in the realm of the occult. The parchments themselves make no great effort to hide a key to that truth. Yet again, this document picks out more letters, easily identified by their small size. They spell out, quite simply, Rex Mundi. King of the Earth, an epithet applied to the devil, the
0: Albigensian creative god of evil whom Saunier placed in his church. By the end, the main thrust of this second documentary is getting very, very judgy about Father Saunier. Lincoln builds to a frenzy, combining his parsing of the secret messages in the parchment with his analysis of an admittedly odd-looking baptismal font. That's a thing that's full of holy water in a Catholic church. Yeah, but this one sports a demon at its base.
1: Many theories have been put forward concerning the significance of this figure. But I realized that the meaning of the whole statuary group was simple and quite startling. Rex Mundi, king of the earth, supports the holy water.
2: Did you hear that mention of the Albigensian term Rex Mundi, the god of this world, i.e. the devil? And remember who the Albigensian crusade was waged against? We told you the Cathars was going to be all over this thing.
0: So, what conclusion are we to reach? Lincoln thinks it's obvious. Sonnier chose the god of this world over the true spiritual god, betraying his forebears and allying himself with the mysterious wealthy benefactors.
1: Did Sonnier's riches come from treasure? Wealthy and distinguished people visited him. Is it possible that some of them who provided him with all he needed were his fellows in a secret society of the occult? Did he admit that though a priest he acknowledged like his heretical forebears, the supremacy of the devil. He knew that after his death, people would speculate on and search for the source of his wealth, and that search has led me down a tortuous trail. For too long, I had threaded a labyrinth, at the heart of which was a simple truth, simple, obvious, and staring. Heavy, black, and pendulous. Thank you.
0: leads us inexorably to the third and final film in this series, Shadow of the Templars. After recounting the story of the Knights, Lincoln makes a number of unsupportable assertions about the reason for their founding, including the suggestion that they were formed at the behest of a powerful but shadowy group called, at the time, the Order of Our Lady of Sion.
2: Sion here is an alternate spelling and pronunciation of the term Zion, so in other words, Jerusalem.
0: He then connects this supposed group with a real-life secret society, the Priory of Sion, to which he suggests the original Order of Our Lady renamed themselves after a falling out with the Templars.
2: Once again, there is no evidence the real-life Priory of Sion created the Knights Templar, though admittedly there are historical records indicating the secret society dates back to just after the fall of the Crusader Kingdom of Jerusalem.
0: But the centerpiece of this whole film is Lincoln's interview with an honest-to-God living member of the Priory of Sion. Pierre Plantard. Plantard is at first a reluctant interviewee, but gradually warms to answering the documentarian's questions. Lincoln begins grilling him about the treasure at Rennes-le-Chateau. Monsieur Plantard, is there still a secret at Rennes-le-Chateau?
2: Here, you are speaking of a material treasure. We are not talking of a material treasure. Let us say, quite simply, that there is a secret in Rennes-le-Chateau. And that it's possible that there is something else around Rennes-le-Chateau.
0: Lincoln asks him about another fascinating connection between the mysterious Priory and the mystery of Wren. By the way, the painting by Poussin that Lincoln discussed in his previous film, the motto of the Priory is the same Latin phrase. It in
2: Arcadia Ego.
0: Featured in that painting. Weird coincidence, right? And how does Poussin fit into this
1: story?
2: To be sure, in the Poussin Poussin painting, there are certain revelations. Poussin was an initiate and he therefore created his painting as an initiate. But he wasn't the only one in this story. There are other characters.
1: In artistic expression,
2: the truth is concealed as one uses symbolism.
0: Lincoln is also able to confirm with Plantard that the Priory of Sion isn't just part of the past, but rather a going concern. Can you tell us whether the Priory of Sion still exists today?
2: At this moment, Sion still exists. One of its more recent members, one of its last grandmasters, was Jean Cocteau. Everyone knows this.
0: Here, Plantard is explaining that Jean Cocteau, the renowned filmmaker and artist who died in 1963, was a recent leader of the group. It's also notable that Plantard features in genealogical records of the line of medieval Frankish... That is, pre-French. ...kings called the Merovingian dynasty, who ruled from the 5th to the mid-8th century. So in addition to being high up in the Priory, Plantard had royal blood. All of this Lincoln discovered from the Priory documents found in the Bibliothèque Nationale de France.
2: Sort of like the French version of the U.S. Library of Congress.
0: Lincoln asks Plantard about this topic as well. Monsieur Plantard, over the centuries you have, uh, uh, how shall I put
1: it, Uh, you have supported the Priory of Zion. We
2: have have supported Zion. And Zion has supported us. We?
1: Who are we? We?
2: Well, I am speaking of the Merovingian line, but our line is descended from King Dagobert II. The Merovingians, it was they who made France. Without them, there would be no France. The Merovingians represent France.
0: By the end of the film, though, Lincoln's real conclusion is revealed. He has decided that everything in his series, from Sonnier's mysterious source of funds, to the composition of Poussin's painting, to the geography around Rennes-le-Chateau, to the supposed hermetic and mystical rites of the inner circle of the Knights Templar, they all revolve around the true treasure, the Pentacle.
2: Ooh, is that a priceless artifact? Or another secret
0: society? No, it's a... it's like a five-pointed star. The geometric shape. What kind of five-pointed star? The kind your teacher marked on your best finger paintings in kindergarten? The ordinary, run-of-the-mill, five-pointed star shape everybody who's listening to this is thinking of right now?
2: How the fuck is this supposed to be the real treasure?
0: I don't know. I told you this guy is a hapless, credulous true believer. The magician uses a pentacle enclosed
1: within a circle for conjuration. But the pentacle is not only a symbol of black magic, of evil. The shape seemed to be assuming an unexpected significance in my research into the history of the Priory of Zion.
0: And he sticks to his guns, even asking Plantard in his interviews about this secret he believes he's uncovered.
1: The geometry is pentagonal, isn't
2: it? I can't answer that.
0: Lincoln clearly thinks this response is Plantard, the initiate, being cagey, but it seems obvious to us that the interviewee literally has no idea what the madman interviewing him is asking.
2: And maybe regrets consenting to be interviewed in the first place.
0: Overall, by the time you've watched all three of these films... Not that you're going to or should. You'll see that Lincoln has built an elaborate architecture of supposition around the story of Rennes-le-Chateau that he originally read in that French-language paperback. Or as Putnam and Wood put it,
2: Between them, these three films greatly extend the story of Rennes-le-Chateau, from the original tale of a poor priest finding treasure and using the money to renovate the church. Henry Lincoln has introduced the Cathars, the Templars, the Priory of Sion, and the geometry of the hills.
0: And he's hardly finished elaborating on his themes. But the next phase of explanation for Henry Lincoln's Frankenstein Monster of Mismatched Conspiracy Claims required him to team up with co-authors Michael Bagent,
2: a professional photojournalist
0: from New Zealand, and Richard Lay, a writer from New Jersey. Note that not one of these guys has any relevant credentials in the areas on which they presume to pontificate in their book. But that didn't stop Holy Blood, upon its publication, from becoming a runaway bestseller. And inspiring the early 80s version of the same whirlwind of confusion, conspiracy, and pseudo history that attended Dan Brown's later sins against common sense. So let's take the time to really pull apart this book and find whatever small, undigested, kernel like nuggets of historical fact we can extract from its stinking, repulsive mass of untruth.
2: Undigested kernels? Have you returned to your upsettingly fecal metaphors? Oh, shit!
0: No time to explain, Dana, because Lincoln, Bajan, and Lee are letting us know that they went into this, I think we're calling it research, with open minds.
3: At the start of our search, we didn't know precisely what we were looking for, or for that matter, looking at. We had no theories and no hypotheses, and we had set out to prove nothing. On the contrary, we were simply trying to find an explanation for a curious little enigma of the late 19th century. The conclusions we eventually reached were not postulated in advance. We were led to them, step by step, as if the evidence we accumulated had a mind of its own, was directing us of its own accord. We believed, at first, that we were dealing with a strictly local mystery. An intriguing mystery, certainly, but a mystery of essentially minor significance, confined to a village in the south of France. We believed that our investigation might help to illumine certain aspects of Western history, but we never dreamed that it might entail rewriting them. Still less do we dream that whatever we discovered could be of any real contemporary relevance, and explosive contemporary relevance at that.
2: You know, I've read history written by real scholars, and it never sounds like this.
0: No, it doesn't. If you've read a lot of rigorous, peer-reviewed academic history, you'll know that all of the more speculative, less mainstream conclusions any respectable historian reaches are tentative, questioning, and backed up by extensive, carefully analyzed sources. Moreover, these authors will always provide the best counterarguments and deal with them in the text itself. The Holy Blood guys are the exact opposite. Utterly confident of unorthodox interpretations, dismissive of the need for persuasive historical evidence, eager to push their narrative well past the breaking point of credibility, and totally unconcerned with any facts that don't fit. It's really remarkable. But don't take his word for
2: it. Here's how the trio themselves explain why no qualified historians have ever proposed their grand thousand-plus-year conspiracy reading of such well-explored topics as early Christianity, Frankish royalty, the Knights Templar, the Cathars, and the Holy Grail romances.
3: At this point, we pause to review the evidence at our disposal. It was leading us in a startling yet unmistakable direction. But why, we wondered, had this evidence never been subpoenaed by scholars before? The answer, we realized, lay in our own age and the modes or habits of thought which characterize it. Modern scholarship lays an ordinate emphasis on specialization, which entails the segregation of knowledge into distinct disciplines. In consequence, the diverse spheres covered by our inquiry have traditionally been segmented into separate compartments. In each compartment, the relevant material has been duly explored and evaluated by specialists or experts in the field. But few, if any, of these experts have endeavoured to establish a connection between their particular field and others that may overlap it. There have been numerous treatises on the Grail romances, their origins and development, their cultural impact, their literary quality, and there have been numerous studies, valid and otherwise, of the Templars and the Crusades. But few experts on the Grail romances have been historians, while fewer still have displayed much interest in the complex, often sordid and not very romantic history behind the Templars and the Crusades. Similarly, historians of the Templars and the Crusades have, like all historians, adhered closely to factual records and documents. The Grail romances have been dismissed as mere fiction, as nothing more than a cultural phenomenon, a species of byproduct generated by the imagination of the age. To suggest to such a historian that the Grail romances might contain a kernel of historical truth would be tantamount to heresy. True, various occult writers, proceeding primarily on the basis of wishful thinking, have given literal credence to the legends, claiming that in some mystical way, the Templars were custodians of the Grail, whatever the Grail might be. But there has been no serious historical study that endeavors to establish any real connection. The Templars are regarded as fact, the Grail as fiction, and no association between the two is possible.
0: Got that? History has become too specialized for any of the brilliant scholars who study these topics to possibly make the connections that these unqualified yahoos have stumbled onto. As if no expert on the Knights Templar has ever researched the connections between the Templars and the Grail legends. In fact, even the non-academic but well-researched and carefully written books we relied on for our Templars section indeed cover the ways the Templars were featured in the popular literature of their time, especially the Grail romances. They just didn't go on to presume that the Grail stories were non-fiction, especially since the Grail itself was never mentioned in the 11-plus centuries before the appearance of said romances.
2: Like, never. Not ever. Not once.
0: Not anywhere. So no, they didn't assume that somehow, in spite of that, it was a real thing that dated back to the time of Christ, because assuming that would be stupid.
2: Please also note the claims that their ideas would be heresy to academia, not so subtly putting the legitimate academic world, with its demand for evidence and peer review, in the position of the all-powerful church theocracy that would brook no dissent from the Templars, the Cathars, etc. The authors preemptively write their claims in such a way as to prefigure themselves as martyrs for a new truth that is too hot for the establishment to touch, And they do this before qualified critics can even sharpen their knives.
0: Okay, so we know what we're going to go through here will be poorly researched, contain huge and unwarranted imaginative leaps, and that it's written by people who think of themselves as brave truth-tellers and not credulous charlatans. Got it. So, with that in mind, let's plow through their research.
4: Hello, my name is Brucker Nurse, and I want to tell you about my fun horror movie podcast called Autopsy of a Horror Movie. On my show, I like to have fun dissecting out what makes a horror movie scary, what worked for it, what didn't, what types of fears does it play off of? Is it an allegory for any sort of message? I don't know, but let's find out. Also, I like to watch slashers. I'm a big slasher guy, so... I'll watch a slasher and do a kill grade for it. I will cover the kills and I will tell you how I would grade it based on shock, method, style points, and a fourth category that is a reflection of the movie. Besides those, I'll have fun with special topic episodes, commentary tracks, interviews with guests, including some shutter directors, so I just like to have a fun time over here. If any of this sounds interesting to you or you just want to come check me out, please head over to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere they listen to podcasts and search for Autopsy of a Horror Movie. Also, be sure to find me on Instagram, at Brucker Horror, where you get fun updates and some cool little posts that I do. Thanks for listening, and I hope that you get to enjoy the show, and I'll see you on Instagram. Bye.